If you have your Bibles, you can open up to James chapter 1 as we're beginning our new series in the book of James. I'll give you a little bit to, to find your place there. Well, Happy New Year! It's great to be with you on this uh, great day. And uh, I mean, this is the day. All last week, you were able to say, you know, I could have one more piece of pie. Because <laughs> you had the thought that, you know, in 2017 is when you're going to make the change. 2017 is when you're going to start eating a little better. But for now, oh yeah, I'll have a little ice cream with it. And it sounds good. And it tastes good. And that now, it is January 1st, 2017. You're going to be different, but I hate to break it to you. That pie and that ice cream are still with you. They don't stop at the time boundary. And so what do we do? We make resolutions. Resolution to be different, to be better. The stats tell us that nearly half of Americans will make a resolution but only about 8% of that will keep it. Now I have to say, I'm, I'm in that 8%. Wait a minute. Nope, the 92%. It was a resolution to get better at math. That was last year's. Didn't work. But I, honestly, I can't remember past resolutions that I made. It's just, it's something that you, you start with, and then, you know, you, by the time you mess up a few times, you start thinking, well, next year. Maybe next year. But right now, it's that's that word that you know is going to be in every headline around this time of year, right? There's either a reflection on 2016 or a hope for what's next, or it's talking about resolutions. And while some of them are trying to give you ideas to how to jumpstart your new year, a lot of them are telling us just that, that your resolution's going to fail. And they like to tell you why. And here's some of the reasons that it'll fail. Because your resolution's too ambitious. You're, you're going for the moon when you need to just settle for a few steps below. Or it's because we get too hung up on specific start dates. We've loaded for bear on January 1 rather than just thinking, well, how about Monday? Or how about this morning? Or this final reason, and I have to read this word for word, it says it's because you need to determine which life events might have caused the invisible scripts in your subconscious. That's why you're going to fail at your resolution. And if you understand what that means, I'd love to talk to you so you can help explain it to me. Um, so I'm not up here to tell you what's going to help make your resolution stick. That's, that's not my thing. What I do want to point out is that in these areas of resolutions, it means we're longing for transformation. And whether it's in health or diet, whether it's in finances or skills that we want to learn, whether it's in our marriage or with our children, we are pretty good at perceiving when change doesn't take place. We notice we know what it looks like. The pounds come back, the clutter reappears, your bank account that you had the resolution to start saving and actually putting in is still flat, and the gym card membership's just collecting dust. And no one has to tell us uh, that this thing has occurred, this lack of change, but there's some people who will. Uh, in fact, even your smartphone knows, and it's going to rat you out. There's a couple of apps, one's called Foursquare and Swarm. They're, they're apps where you check into locations, and they have pinpointed that February 4th is the day that most people stop checking in at the gym and start checking in at McDonald's. <laughs> Your phone is working against you. Now, these apps did studies in order to figure that out. All we have to do is look in the mirror. 
And it's easy to spot when transformation doesn't occur. But what about in your spiritual life? What is the the measurement or what is the guide? What about in your relationship to God? Do you know what transformation is supposed to look like? Or to put it a different way, do you know when you haven't been transformed? Or when it's not looking like you've been transformed at all? How do we recognize true spiritual transformation? And so our Bible text today, I I told you to open up to James chapter 1, which I'm having a difficulty finding. There we go. But all we're going to look at this morning is one verse. Verse 1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That's not very much, is it? But if you will take a walk with me to look at the life of James, then I believe that this passage right here has a lot more to say than first meets the eye. In fact, I believe that it is the foundation on which the rest of his message is set. And that from this verse, we begin to see what's the big idea this morning, the thing I hope you'll take away, and that is this, the transformed life has an active faith. The transformed life has an active faith. But in order to get there, we need to first look at James's life. And once we see his transformation, I believe we will see how his life affects his message. Now, we don't have a lot in the scriptures that tell about the younger years of Jesus, his birth, when he's 12 at the temple, but we have far less even to tell us about what James, his brother, was like in those years. But can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus was your brother? I mean, I have a, one sibling, one older brother. His name's Ryan. He's three years older than me. And by the time I got to high school, he started acknowledging that I was his brother, so that was pretty cool. And once he did, he was a pretty good brother. And he still is to this day. He really is a, a great brother. But some of the things that I appreciated most growing up is when he, in certain areas, maybe school or with our parents, set the bar a little lower. That was always nice. Little things like a, a bad grade on a paper or not exactly doing what mom and dad told him to do gave me the chance, as the little brother does, to kind of swoop in and bring a little shining light upon myself. And that way, I felt like I got a little more love and attention. Well, you don't get a chance like that when Jesus is your brother. There's no uh, bar lowering that you get to step into and jump over. I mean, I just have to imagine Mary speaking to James. She brings him to his room. James, your brother never hits his sister. James, your brother always eats his vegetables, and he always tells the truth. James, why can't you just be more like your brother Jesus? How would you like to hear that? I have to imagine James is muttering to himself, man, she treats him like he walks on water. (laughs) Well, with our sinful nature, the the way that we respond to perfection sometimes is we get embittered towards it. I mean, it's the same reason for the few of you that are saying, you know what, I'm going to do this resolution, and my friends are too. If you fail, you're hoping they fail too. Am I right? I mean, you don't have to admit it because they're sitting next to you. All I'm really saying is it just might have been hard to have a perfect brother, not because of anything from Jesus, not to say anything bad towards his love and graciousness towards his siblings and the way he would uh, take care of them and be there for them, but simply because of James and his siblings and their own sin. 
But again, this is conjecture. What does the Bible tell us about James's response to Jesus's ministry? I could find four that are pretty clear in the Gospels. The first one is this, that James thought Jesus was crazy. After doing a lot of healing and preaching in other towns, Mark 3 tells us this, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus' family had thought he had lost it. They thought he was nuts, bananas. And they were doing what I think is one of the earliest recorded family interventions. All right, we're going to get together, we're going to all tell them right at the same time, and we're going to acknowledge this. But it's not drinking, it's not drugs, it's because Jesus was making claims of being the Messiah, of being the Son of God, of being able to heal and to release people from their oppression. And they thought he was crazy. Second response we see is that James thought Jesus had rejected them. A little further in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, first of all, I think Jesus already knows from before that this is another intervention they're trying to put into play here. But he uses it as an opportunity to show that there's something stronger than family relationships. A new family made through obedience and belief in God. But how do you think James would respond to this? I think he would think that Jesus was rejecting his own family. This was a time in a culture where family was number one. They weren't so individualistic as we are today. I think it would have been shameful to have Jesus publicly seem to disown his family. I think uh, James would have thought Jesus had rejected them. Number three, James thought Jesus was ruining their reputation. There's another time when Jesus comes back home to Nazareth and he begins to teach in the synagogue and the people are amazed at the things that he's saying and what he's claiming. But then they remember that they know him. And they start to downplay it. But listen to how they identify Jesus. They say this in Mark 6. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I want you to notice that James and his siblings' names are wrapped into what Jesus is doing. Luke tells us that in that same episode, the people were so riled up that they actually take Jesus over to the the cliff and they want to toss him off of it. And we don't know how he gets out of it, but I want you to understand this. People that are willing to kill Jesus for what he says, how do you think they're going to turn around and treat his family? I think they're going to be ostracized. They're going to be uh, shamed and mocked and scorned. Being the brother of Jesus in that small town is like having a scarlet letter on your chest. Jesus is ruining their reputation. And the fourth response, really the culmination, I think, of all the rest, is that James didn't believe Jesus. 
you know, from John 2, we actually get the kind of the understanding that the entire family of Jesus was probably invited to that wedding in Cana where Jesus turns water into wine. And yet this act, like others that James and his brothers would have at least heard about, if not also seen, it does nothing to open their eyes to see who Jesus really was. And we know this because later in John chapter 7, after mocking Jesus and his mission, verse 5 tells us this, for not even his brothers believed in him. That's a low point. And it's not like they're on the, the edge of faith. They're, they're about to believe. They're, they're just almost there. They are mocking and they are taunting him. They're uh, undermining his claims and they're, they're teasing him in order to try to get him to go into a dangerous situation where his life would be on the line. They didn't believe. James didn't believe. And then that's the last that we really see of him in Jesus' life. James had had a front row view of his brother and a courtside seat for his whole life as to what Jesus was doing, and he thought he was crazy. He thought he had rejected their family. He thought that he had ruined their reputations, and he didn't believe. read an article in Christianity Today, and had a story of the, the life of this young man named Jonathan Bailey. And the story resonated with me because he was a young man who grew up as a pastor's son, and there's four kids, and made me think of my own. But as he grew up, he has a fond memory of adventuring with his brother and of listening to the adventures in the Bible as read and told by his dad. But as he got older, he started to throw himself more into behind-the-scenes work at the youth group and church. He'd uh, do stuff like video announcements or get into the technology side. He'd work the sound booth in order to avoid worshiping just so he could watch other people worship instead. And he writes about how Christianity became for him a thing about facts and just a place to be polite. As he got into high school, he realized, I don't want to go to hell, but I'm just not that sure about this heaven place either. And at the age of 22, as he went to work at a Christian summer camp, as he says, he says, the contempt for all things Christian hardened. It hardened him. Jonathan's increased closeness to Christ, spending time with other believers without real belief in Christ of his own, was hardening his heart toward Jesus. Well, we look at James, we look at his closeness, he had it too. But he is the picture of a man with no reason or desire to believe. No inclination towards faith. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. There's really nothing that can change that. But then something does. And if you're reading through the Gospels and into the New Testament, you might actually miss it. You see, the Bible gives us a different picture of James. In Acts chapter 1, he is in the upper room with the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit. By Acts 12 and 15, he has taken on a significant role of leadership in the early church in Jerusalem. In Galatians 1 and 2, Paul calls James an apostle, and he calls him a pillar of the church. History tells us that James dies a martyr's death, that he is killed for his faith in Jesus. Something has happened. Something has happened between the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts. Something has changed James so that he goes from unwilling to believe Jesus to now devotion and even sacrifice on his behalf. 
James is transformed. And the only place where it shows up as to, for us to know why is in the Apostle Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul writes this, beginning by telling what's at the core of the gospel. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Five words. That's all we get. Then he appeared to James. The risen Lord Jesus appeared to his brother. He showed up for James. And that's what changes everything. And we know from James's past, we know that he wasn't going to open his own eyes. He wasn't going to see Jesus for who he really was. There's too much baggage. There's too much misunderstanding, too much hurt, too much pain, too much sin, just like all of us. So we can't see Jesus for who he really is unless God shows him to us. We can't believe unless God opens our eyes to see. And this is exactly what James got from Jesus. He opened his eyes. He woke him up for his sleep. And James was never the same. Now, if you read this and you read that passage in 1 Corinthians, if you're like me and you think, all right, I want to see the risen Jesus. I want that to be the way that opens up my eyes. I want that to be the thing that confirms my faith, that gives me a reason to believe. I need this. But if you talk to other followers of Jesus and begin to hear their stories, you realize Jesus still shows up to people just in some different ways. A few different examples. For an 18-year-old British soccer star, it was a Bible study that caused him to realize that his biggest problem wasn't trying to get the approval of the crowd in the stands, but that sin was blocking him from the approval of God. For an attorney in communist Romania, it was a client that radiated joy and peace and invited her to come to church where she heard these words, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And for a government assassin who was then sent to kill that same attorney for her faith, it was the emboldened words that she shared about purpose, sin, judgment, and the good news of Jesus, which finally caused that man to put down his gun and say, I do need Christ, and I will come to your church, and I will worship your powerful God. See, when you get to know the James, that, who was Jesus' brother, you realize there is no way that this guy was going to follow Jesus on his own. I mean, he's seen miraculous stuff, but it doesn't matter. He's still not buying it. But a resurrected Jesus changes all of that. The grace of God poured out into his life changes that, so much so that he is willing to die for his brother. But not as a brother, as a servant. Again, back to James 1.1, says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James' focus is on Jesus' lordship. He sees him as co-owner with God the Father of his very life. Why doesn't James 
also mention that he's his brother. Don't you think that would give him a little more clout, a little more authority to write on Jesus, to write on the Christian faith to these people he's sending it to? I think he does not put it because as a brother, James couldn't see. As a brother, there was no spiritual benefit to him. And as a brother, James didn't believe. There's no life to be found for James by simply being blood related to Jesus. Not as a brother, but there was life to be found as a servant. Back to Mark 3, verse 35, where Jesus says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Christianity isn't about bloodlines. It's about belief. It's not about who you're related to. It's about who you serve. And only as Jesus' servant was James now really his brother. So what should James' life mean for us? Jesus can transform you. Jesus can transform you. You know, this is a time right now where people look at lots of different options to, to get healthy and shed the weight, to get new habits or hit new goals. And the question as we address what we're going to do is, is this going to work? There's all these other options. Do I try one of those? Is, is this the right solution for me? Is it going to get where I want to go? We've come up with 101 different diets, dozens of different fitness styles and exercise regimes. But when it comes to total life transformation, the Bible is very simple and clear. Jesus is the only way. He is the only one who can bring you real change. You might be thinking right now, a little skeptical of that, what, what kind of change are we talking about? How do I know that Jesus can really be the one who addresses my needs, my heart, my soul, my life? And it's hard to explain in, in just a, a simple way because the good news of Jesus, it's so multifaceted. And because our spiritual need is so nuanced, the scriptures give us lots of different pictures of what this gift of Jesus in our life really is. It says that for the wanderers, he retrieves us. For the prisoners, he releases. For the sick, he heals. For the storm-tossed, he rescues. For the sleeping, he wakes. For the broken, he fixes. For the poor, he enriches. For the blind, he gives sight. For the stained, he cleanses. For the stranger, he brings near. For the orphan, he adopts. For the barren, he fills. For the slave, he redeems. For the lost, he finds. For the sinner, he forgives. For the rebel, he makes co-heirs. For the guilty, he justifies. For the fruitless, he gives purpose. And for the dead, he makes alive. That's what our Jesus does. And it's hard to explain in one picture because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is inexhaustible. It is everything everyone needs to be transformed. And it's for all who will place their trust in Jesus' hands. He can transform you. But the second point of application is this, that he can transform anyone you see, James's transformation is the reminder that we should not give up hope. We should not give up hope for the loved ones and friends and family members, children and grandchildren, spouses, distant relatives who seem so far away from Jesus. They can't be too far. 
It's not about where they are at. It's about who they encounter and the grace that God pours out. Christian author and leader Russell Moore writes this. He says, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the the Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. But the Spirit of God can turn all that around and seems to delight to do so. If Jesus has the power to transform lives, then we shouldn't be trying to limit who he can do this to. He won't let us. So instead, let us look for how Jesus will do this and who Jesus will do this for. And let us long to see it happen again and again and again. The book of James begins with the acknowledgement of a transformed life. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just the beginning of where this letter is going to take us. And we've looked at his life, and now I want to look briefly at his message. In the news this weekend, I read a story about a man who went up to his parents' old cabin, and he found in there some books, a whole stack of books, and in there were two books in particular from the public library. They'd been there 40 years. They were overdue. The two books were guidebooks that had actually been pretty important to his family, brought back good memories, how they helped them to begin to grow an appreciation for nature and uh, develop a lifestyle of loving the outdoors. They're simple, practical books, and they were of great use to them and also apparently great value because the man decided to contact his brothers and sisters and round up some money. And he actually sent a check to the library for $1,552.30 because he calculated at the 1970-whatever rate of a nickel a day, that's how much they owed. But when he sent the check, he also sent a letter. And in that letter, he told them about how much these books have meant to him. And then he asked them, would you please leave it with us on loan? And in another 40 years, we'll send you another check. I think this story is a good picture as to why James has continued to be a favorite among Christians. Because at its core, it is a practical book, a book that we can immediately see our need and put into practice. One scholar, Robert Gundry, calls it a manual of Christian conduct that assumes a foundation of faith. And by that, that's to say that it begins with a transformation in Christ by faith as seen in James's life. And then he proceeds to show us how it should be lived out. And who's he writing to? James 1.1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James is writing to scattered Jewish believers Those who from the persecution have not only left Jerusalem where they were part of his flock, but have scattered beyond the borders of their nation. And James, as the pastor of the scattered flock, he continues to care for them and to minister to them by writing this letter. And in this letter, which reads more like a series of sermons, James encourages them to display and to live out the faith for which Jesus has transformed them. Two of the key scriptures for this series from the book of James are this, James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
And then in James 2.22, referring to the faith of Abraham, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The big idea of the book of James, as we enter into it, is that genuine faith must become evident in works, because that's what genuine faith does. Now, this isn't unique to James. We already talked about Jesus saying that his brothers and sisters were those who do the will of God. He also said this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Paul also explains similarly that we were created for good works in Ephesians, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the next line in Jesus paid it all is not that now I'll go to bed. That's not what we sing because that's not what we're to do. Jesus did the work, and now our work has begun. Saving faith is not a a fire insurance that you keep in a safety deposit box and just pull out when you think you're going to need it. It's active. It works. Not so that we can earn anything from God, but to joyfully work in what he's prepared for us. And so James writes to his flock that's been scattered by persecution to not flee from their Christian commitments. Friends, the message of James is that faith doesn't sit on the bench. It doesn't hold up in the cabin. There's no armchair Christians or couch potato disciples. The transformed life has an active faith. So what will this message mean for us? Simply this, put your faith in action. Now, every week of the series, we're going to get into some particulars, but here's some general thoughts on it. First, read through James with a view to your own shortcomings and failures This isn't a book to read in order to kind of give the nudge to the people around you who are falling short. No, this is for you to let his words agitate you and bother you as he exposes your errors, as he destroys your objections and excuses and exhorts you to, what's the number two step is repent. So you can make a resolution about the year. You might keep it, you might not. But God doesn't call us to simple resolution, to do something of our own strength and will. He calls us to repentance, to turn from our sin and turn towards God in faith. Not once for all, but continually as we, number three, rely upon God's strength. See, James isn't telling us that we're alone or that we gotta somehow do this in our own power. He is working out of the worldview where transformed lives by God's power live out their faith by God's power. And so you need to put your faith in action, trusting God to do his part. And if we're doing that, then the second part of our application here is easy, that we would put our faith in action as a church. Dream with me a little bit. What will it look like if South Shore's church actively lives out our faith, if we put it out there, if we get out there and we do something with it. The transformed life has an active faith, and it impacts those around us. I want to tell you a little more about that man's story, Jonathan Bailey. At the height of his embitterment toward God, he watched his friend, his best friend, walk down the aisle and meet up with Jesus Now, Jonathan expected that it would just be the same thing, a a passionate, emotional uh, declaration followed by a couple of weeks of devotion and then relapsing. But he watched in his friend as it was different this time. And he writes this. He says, month after month, like a flower in spring, he grew. I spent the next five months closely watching him study and pray and seek Jesus. His commitment and love for God were unwavering. And soon a waterfall of hope washed over me. 
and the thought sees me. Change is possible. It's actually possible. Friends, Jesus transforms. He can transform you. He can transform anyone. But when he does, the faith that he produces in you is not meant to stay just in you. We don't believe simply for believing's sake. It makes a difference. It does something in who we are and how we live, and it gets out there. The transformed life has an active faith. It's time for us to get out there. It's time to look at James as the handbook to guide us. Please join me in prayer. Father, as we go into a time of communion, we are reminded that we do not simply believe in a person, but in a person who did something. May the bread remind us of Jesus' body broken, the juice his blood spilt, that Jesus was not a merely a hearer of his father's plans, but he did it, and he did exactly what we could not do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.